Hello, Andrew. How are you doing? Very good, strangely enough. Um, <laughs> the fact you just said strangely enough reveals that we're right in the middle of the coronavirus crisis. Exactly. And this you is a say special edition of yes. Sweeney versus Bard, where we're going to talk about that um, uh, on different levels. So this is March 19, 2020. Right. So that, you know, if anybody looks at this afterwards, which you obviously all will, then you know that there was a specific date in time and conditions were specific at that date. This is actually a form of philosophy we're practicing right now called eventology. Mm-hmm. So eventology yeah. is like what Heidegger and, 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 and Alain Badiou and many other philosophers dealt with a lot. And of course, if you're a process philosopher, if you do philosophy on time and process and relations like John Sadek Fist and I do, uh, if you believe that this is the fundamental aspect of reality, then certainly events is yeah. the name, the philosophical name for specific things that happen throughout history that change everything forever once they happen. Right. And it could very well be that the coronavirus pandemic is going to be one of those events. Yeah, certainly looks it's that breaking way. into our, our reality, all aspects of our, our, our lives and our, our reality. Okay. Yeah, so if you talk, say, to a really good epidemiologist, they would probably say, this is not the big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, the big pandemics in history kill children. They kill just about everybody. They kill usually half or a third of the population. That's not going to happen this time around. But it's looking very bad. So this is March 19th. It's looking very bad in Southern Europe at the moment, where it's even worse than it ever mm-hmm. was in China. And, and of course, we're sympathetic now with the Italians and, and the Spanish and, and increasingly with the French who are now suffering from yeah, the um, pandemic. Yeah, maybe, maybe we could talk about that. I'm living in, in Paris and uh, on full, uh, full-on isolation. I, I can't go out in the street without a piece of paper yep. saying that uh, I'm going for a walk uh, for exercise or I have to go to the pharmacy or, or go shopping. Yeah, um, I haven't been out in, in, a, in a week pretty much getting all the groceries delivered. So, so anyway. Scandinavia, where I live, we have a lot of cases, very few deaths so far. This is March yeah. 19. It could, of course, get a lot worse. It could get like France or even like Italy. We know that. But here in Scandinavia, we have more of a sort of an improvised semi-isolation. So people take responsibility for themselves. You know, they, they buy groceries for the neighbors if the neighbors are elderly or sick or anything. And, but we still go to the shops. Uh, I went even out to a, a restaurant last night to support the, the, the local, you know, small business around here. But we sat very separately from other guests and, and we minimized the risk here. But it, it's mm. far less hysterical, I would say, than in France. But also yeah. we're either after the curve or we're more lucky when it comes to Scandinavia. So that's the situation here on March 19th. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And, and of course, I'm concerning my 86-year-old mother. She got out of surgery a couple of weeks ago. She's the feastiest, most wonderful woman in the world. But she lives in her own house in the countryside, and I have a brother and a sister who look after her when needed. But we try to minimize her contacts with the outside world. It well, turns I'm, out, I'm concerned about my neighbor who just had a stroke, So and, and, I, yeah. and I'm not supposed to go and contact her. And yeah. normally we talk a lot, and so it's a very awkward situation yeah it is it is awkward it's certainly awkward if you're urban if you live in a you know in a big city right now but uh we know from italy for a fact already that the average age of the people who die from this disease is 79 and a half Mm. so it is older elderly people who are most at risk and people who have certain previous dispositions and and health problems that i've got asthma myself so i'm actually listed on that list so i should Mm. be careful i guess yeah here where things go Mm. We'll know more in three months' time. Obviously, this is a, a commentary you and I are making today where the philosophy certainly will be timeless, but the news feed is specific for March 19th. Just to make right, it clear. Right. So um, so we I was thinking like we could talk about, you know, we as we're doing right now, what's happening now. And and maybe you could sort of predict what you think is going to happen, what the ramifications of this will be on all levels of society. And, uh, and also maybe uh, since you know a lot about history, you could talk about what usually happens and what are the possibilities? What, what, what are like, what are the dangers? Like let's say a totalitarian dangers of this kind of thing. And what are the, the possibilities of reconstructing how we live? Okay. So epidemics and pandemics is like, um, that's part of philosophy. Uh, every philosopher, you know, writes about it. As soon as a philosopher writes about the social sphere, you write about human beings. You have to you have to approach pandemics and epidemics because they have they are certain events or even traumas. I would say the traumas in human history. So, uh, for example, we have the the two 
biggest ones we suffered in the, in the West, at least, was, was the big plague of the 6th century that changed history forever. Uh, you know, we talked a lot about how the Persian Empire went down and, and the major cause why the Persian Empire went down in the, 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 in the next 100 years after that plague was because the plague had killed almost half the population of the Persian Empire. It was devastating. Uh, it didn't kill as many Arabs and as many Europeans, and that's exactly why the Arabs and the Europeans came to dominate the Middle East and Europe after that, and they've done so ever since. But the Persians got out of the way and, and, and sort of, became the Iranians we know today, uh, which is a more of an isolated nation between East and West. But the golden era of the Persian Empire was over by the, by the seventh century. And this was because of a plague in the sixth century. And of course, we have another plague that the Europeans and Americans are familiar with. And that's the one for the 14th century. Mm -hmm. uh, that was a massive plague that killed about a third of the population of Europe. Uh, it ironically also opened up for the Renaissance afterwards. The, once things get around, but it takes a long time, we're going to suffer from a major economic recession. Follow this, yeah. no doubt about that. We're going to mass unemployment. I think it's a double tragedy for Italy because Italy's economy was, was already, you know, totally in havoc before this happened. It's not going to get mm. any better because of it. So we don't know the ramifications in that sense. But, and this is not the big one. Even if it hurts to say that, considering that thousands of people are dying in Europe at the moment, and possibly also soon in North America. But the, the, the fact is that uh, the big ones hit the population on a much wider scale. Hmm. It's up to a third or even half of the population to die eventually from the big plagues. And this is not yeah. a plague in that sense. This is a virus. And this is way more serious than a regular influenza because a new virus as well, it could be have a mortality rate that could be up to 10 or 50 times higher than normal flu we don't know that yet so but we, are, but we, we do we do we have ways to deal with this sort of thing that we didn't let's say in the middle ages right um so 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 maybe it would be much more lethal in another uh context well so far it sounds horrible but since it kills old people already sick it doesn't kill the young people of the future because if yeah. it kills young people of the future the, the, the damage the overall damage done to society will last way, way longer. Right, be much worse. Know. You, you yeah. could even see whole civilization go down because of that. That's not going to happen in this case, obviously. But, but it is but, a danger when the elders of the society die. I mean, that, that's, yeah, that's sure. also something, right? That's the yeah, history yeah. of the society and of the leaders. The, oh, know. you can ask gay people, for example. They suffered from their own pandemic called HIV in the 1980s and the 1990s before we yeah. got medication that put a break to that. But most of the gay people I talk to, and, and I'm bisexual myself, so I'm part of the LGBT movement, and, and uh, most of the gay guys today, my generation, I'm 59, they feel that the generation older than me and this generation that I belong to were the ones mm -hmm. that died, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, the shiniest, brightest guys died because <laughs> mm. they obviously slept around the most and they were the most gorgeous. So um, what was left was kind of a pale copy of what the gay movement had been before that. And then, of course, they've done great work with fighting for the rights and, you know, fighting for not being ostracized because of the disease they had. And, and that work has been going on since the early 1990s. And it, it's now on a global scale. I mean, you still have to fight for fundamental gay rights in places like Africa and Russia today. In other parts of the world, gays have become accepted by society. They, they can even marry and have children these days. But if you look at, if you look at the overall effects, over the last 30 years, uh, I think the gay guys would agree with me uh, that the whole culture as a whole has suffered. And that means all of culture has suffered. You know what I, I always talk about? The mm -hmm. androgynous people should consider themselves to be an important part of the overall society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We always talk about the androgynous people should not live in ghettos separated from the rest of society. They should live in between men and women, in the middle of society, in between what we call the outer and the inner circles. And you can, you can just look at like, Theater. Theater has become very nostalgic. You go to Broadway, they play the same old plays all over and over again. <coughs> and if they're not old plays, it's usually just a Disney movie turned into a musical, right? So the, the, the lack of imagination, the lack of innovation in that area is enormous. But when mm -hmm. you consider the fact that people... And that's a result, been, you think, of the yeah, HIV crisis. The, the people who should have been the original playwrights today. There, there are a few out there like Brad Easton Alice is gay and he's fantastic, but... If you think if the world should have had 40 or 50 Bright Eastern Ellis's rather than just one, uh -huh. mm. that, that's, that's what we should have had if AIDS hadn't happened. Right. So the damage done 
when the younger part of the population get affected by disease, it's a cultural one also. It's not just the number of corpses or the number of people who suffer or get sick, but mm-hmm. and the family tragedies that go with that. But it's also when younger people die in 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 the pandemic, you get a massive cultural effect as well mm-hmm. on society as a whole. Mm-hmm. And that takes hundreds of years sometimes to compensate for. Mm-hmm. This is more likely to be a decade or so. But I don't want to speculate too much on the rest. Uh, I mean, I'm following the news every day and I work with epidemiologists. I'm, I'm an economic geographer by training. As a philosopher, mm-hmm. I do complexity theory. This is, this is at the core of complexity theory, that a society is in itself complexity theory in practice. So, so it's very, very difficult to make the right decisions at the right time. You need a deep understanding of history, psychology, sociology, social psychology, um, political science, all these things. And also one country is different from the next. You can't just have the same model for everywhere. In some countries, it is, it is, it is the epidemiologists have the ultimate power. In other countries, it's the politicians have the ultimate power. And that makes, these, the, 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 that makes a major difference when you make decisions um, and, and policies, apply policies on how you're going to solve a problem like this. Hmm. And of course, also some countries have invested in their healthcare and some haven't. And some countries have universal healthcare and some countries, unfortunately, only have healthcare for the rich and few. Yeah. So hmm. we, we have yet to see what's going to happen in, in what we used to call the third world in countries like Pakistan, Egypt, and Brazil, where probably the virus is going to strike next. And uh, I don't even want to think about how bad that can be. Uh, right. If we're lucky, warm weather could, could be part of the solution, but we don't know that yet. Right. Yeah. As of yeah. March 19, we have no idea. Yeah. It's a whole new virus. So speculating how it's going to operate, judging from previous virus pandemics is very hard. Hmm. Mm. But back to philosophy. This okay. is called eventology. So <laughs> uh, what do we mean by eventology? It's okay. There are two ways of looking at the world. You and I explored this in the past in our webcast. And one of them is nomadology and the other one is eventology. And nomadology is the fundamental story of, of the human tribe on the move. Yeah. Story about the, the two patriarchs, uh, the, the priest, and the chieftain, and the matriarch, who they're responsible to, and the movement of this triad over time. Uh, we see the pattern returning in all the major religions. So we know for a fact that nomadology is something we can study today as the narrative of the sociant, the original nomadic tribe. And this whole new science of sociontology is exploring how we human beings developed over a period of 60 to 70,000 years when not much changed. And precisely because not much changed, the worldview was essentially this one. It was that every new year, usually in the spring, you would celebrate the new year and history would just repeat itself. It would mm-hmm. just be a new year. Literally a new world would appear to you. Mm. And, and that year would close the next spring when a new year would come. Yeah. So following every year, because years are obviously circular, you would have an idea of time as being circular. So everything would just come back to the same point all over again. Mm-hmm. Now, what happens with permanent settlements 10,000 years ago, and that's also when things like pandemics and epidemics become problematic, because mm. we settled down. And eventually, instead of just going to war with our neighbors all the time, we have to make peace with them and we start to trade with them. Now, that's beautiful. Uh, because trade creates an abundance that human beings have never seen before. So humanity mm-hmm. explodes and we go from at most 3 million people as a whole on the planet during pure nomadology. We call it pure yeah. nomadology. Interstate, we mix, we start a mixed nomadology. Nomadology is still the dominant mode in Chinese and Indian culture. Hinduism is a nomadological mm-hmm. religion. But we add two nomadologies, starting in Persia 3,700 years ago, we add the idea that we can have an eventology as like a second religion. This is basically the religion to begin with for the military and the religion for the priesthood themselves. Eventually it becomes the more masculine aspect of religion. And, and Zoroastrianism is the first and original eventology. This is why it's also associated with monotheism. All the monotheism might be the Can you like name. just flesh that out a little bit? Like what, what you mean by eventology, uh, eventology in terms of religion? Lit- yeah, it's like, linear time. It's linear time. So it means that, uh-huh. no, life does not repeat itself every year. It, right. it means that, no, the, the new year we're celebrating this spring doesn't mean that the world has just died and the world has woken up again and be reborn for another year. 
when so it's a story it's a story of a forward progression of some kind or a yeah. devel- development of it's a developmental story basically yeah so for example if you take friedrich nietzsche's philosophy it's central in understand he doesn't use these terms the terms arrive later with gilles deleuze in the 20th century when he rereads nietzsche and does it brilliantly if you want to study nietzsche you start by reading deleuze's book on nietzsche it's a great great start then you can read Nietzsche for himself after that. But Nietzsche deals with the fact that like with every return of the same, you know, the, the term, the eternal mm-hmm, returns of the yeah. same mm-hmm. comes from Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. But it's ancient. It, it's what circular time and circular religion is all about. Buddhism and Hinduism and these religions are based on it. So the nomadological eternal return of the same is then there's something that's added to that. And it's actually biological. It starts in the social. It starts with the nomadology itself before we even settle and it's a difference between the relationship between the son and the father and the daughter and the mother. Because in the relationship with the daughter and the mother in, in the world of psychoanalysis, the daughter just mimics the mother. Mm-hmm. That's all she needs to do. And she then gives birth to children. And these children are different from the child she was when she was a child. But that's mm-hmm. the only difference you see within the matriarchy. And the, the father rebels that, against the, the, I mean, the son rebels against the father. No, not rebels. Not he doesn't rebels? have okay. to necessarily, but he's different. He's slightly different. Okay. And this little, little difference, he said the philosophy is just like physics. The small, small differences make a hell of a difference at the end of the day. Always remember that the small differences at this specific point in time make mm-hmm. a hell of a difference later. That somebody coughed in Wuhan, China, probably in mm-hmm. October in 2019, Mm-hmm. has turned the world upside down on 19 March, 2020. Mm-hmm. Okay. So small things in biology and physics and philosophy can make a hell of a difference later on. Yeah. So the small difference in the relationship between son and father in, 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 in the Sosyant, in the original tribe, means that the son is slightly different from the father. Mm-hmm. And this difference, of course, well, where we have an identity. This is where I'm not my dad. I'm not his junior. I am something different from my dad. Is something that's ingrained in, in the masculine identity. That's why we don't mm. have matricide in Sigmund Freud. You don't kill the old woman. You, know, you just let her rule the tribe as much as she wants to until she dies. You don't question mm. her authority. Dictatorship is perfectly okay as long as it's on the female side, right? Mm. But but on the male side, you separate the chieftain and the priest because you don't want dictatorship there because you're going to lead. You're going to follow. You're going to lead and then follow into the future. That's what, that's what the outer circuit of manhood is all about. Mm-hmm. And the fact the son is slightly different from the father means that with every loop of the eternal return of the same, the next loop is slightly different. Mm. The new year, this new year, is not exactly the same as last year. Mm-hmm. So this is a fallacy. It sounds like the invention of time. Uh, no, in linear sense. time. Linear time, yes. Linear uh, time. What do they we call that in uh, Greek? Uh, when they differentiate between Kairos and Kronos in, in Greece, they actually difference between how we perceive time and how it actually operates. Okay. But so, mm. so no, not even the Greeks. The Greeks are still within circular time, I would say most of the time. They, they, they rarely leave that concept. It's certainly predominant in Plato mm. and in Heraclitus before him. I wouldn't say that... Uh, the Greeks do not really deal with linear time. Linear time definitely comes to Europe through the Hebrews. Uh-huh, right. It comes mm-hmm. through religion. So through biblical religion. Yeah, right. Yes. So mm-hmm. linear time was founded by Zoroaster. That was his biggest innovation, more important than monotheism. And that later becomes Judaism. And we know that Zoroastrians and Jews have had a long love affair with each other for thousands of years. And it starts when the Persians conquer Babylon and they find a strange Egyptian sect called the Hebrews. In Babylon, they set them free because the religion the Hebrews already are practicing with a separate uh, Yahweh and El, or El and Adonai. They have two different aspects of, of the divinity of God. This is exactly like Oura and Masa are separate in Zoroastrian religion. They obviously felt they were akin, like they get it. And what the Jews then got from the Persians was the idea of linear time. Mm-hmm. So they started to write down their Bible with the Genesis and with the Exodus and everything. And they rewrote, of course, which was the founding mythology of the Hebrew religion was, of course, the Exodus out of Egypt. Mm-hmm. And this is where it gets interesting. We're both Sigmund Freud. And now we are working in the same area with a new book, John Sedeckist and I. We're following up on Freud's Moses and Monotheism. Is that linear time also hits the Egyptians in a big way through Akhenaten, 1300 before Christ, right? Mm-hmm. That's about 400 years after after the linear time revolution has happened in Persia. The Persians know how to separate the chieftain and, and the priest, but the Egyptians try to unify them. And that's why dictatorship and tyranny starts in Egypt, 
1300 before Christ. We're still in the Bronze Age, long before the Axial Age. This is when the really interesting things happen in human history during the Bronze Age. And the Egyptians then formulate through Agnaton the idea that the chieftain and, and, and the priest must be the same person. Mm -hmm. It's monotheism yeah. in a dualistic world. Mm -hmm. So the duality moves from chieftain and priest into you, it's internalized, and you separate body and soul. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that's the, the beginning of a sort of schizophrenic um, dualism. Yeah, and that, that idea already existed in Egypt because they already built pyramids. So dualism was already rampant in Egypt, and that, that I think is why it was the Egyptians who invented um, the monic cult, the monic, the cult of the one. So this is, this is like the cult of, of the unified priest, and, pre, uh, priest and chieftain into one person. Mm -hmm. um, and then of course, Agnaton, there was pure terror. He died. His son Tutankhamun was later murdered by the priests. We're even speculating, you and I, that this could possibly be the origin of Judaism. And that says Christianity is only mimicking Judaism and putting Christ on the cross 1300 years later. But we all know that the Jews rewrote the exodus out of Egypt, instead of just Moses leading the people out of Egypt, having one leader, which would have mm -hmm. been more Egyptian, they started mimicking the Persian uh, pattern, the nomadological pattern, which was that the chieftain and the priest must be separate, and then we got a matriarch pushing mm -hmm. us all forward. And these are the three holy siblings in Judaism. That's why in, in the Jewish retelling of the exodus out of Egypt, it's fundamental that there's Moses, there's Aaron, and there's Miriam. Huh. Aaron mm -hmm. is the chieftain, Moses is the priest, and Miriam as the matriarch. Okay, that's another kind of trinity here. Um, Trinities again. Trinities all over the place. Triads, as we call them. Triads. They're, they're mm. stable over time because they're triads. It's a, it's a mathematical construction. Even the American Constitution that will save America today, no matter what happens with the coronavirus, uh, even the American Constitution is built on the same kind of triad. Obviously, uh -huh. Aaron is the president, Moses is the Congress, and Miriam is the Supreme Court. Same pattern. So... Mm -hmm. Eventology then explodes because now you have Zoroastrianism and you have Judaism, and in the Persian Empire, Zoroastrianism is practiced as the overall religion for the entire empire. And they completely tolerate, accept, even endorse the Jewish religion as a mm -hmm. separate religion within Zoroastrianism. Why do they do that? They do it precisely because Zoroastrianism is a universal religion, whereas Judaism, when it's practiced, is the origin of nationalism. Mm -hmm. So the, the Hegelian nation-state. The Israel nation. Okay. The Hegelian nation-state that we in Europe, of course, started shaping up in the 19th century after the big European empires fell apart. So empire as a concept is older than nation, way older than nation. We built mm -hmm. empires mm -hmm. as soon as we got out of our own permanent settlements and started conquering mm -hmm. the territories okay. of yeah. others. But nationality, we speak the same language, we write the same text, we recite from the same text so we can practice the same religious rituals. Starts mm -hmm. with Judaism. And what we then inherit in Europe is this shared Persian Jewish ancestry. And that's when we talk about European history. We talk about Athens and Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And we, we, today we discuss it like there's a history of philosophy and there's a history of religion. The history of philosophy starts with the Greeks, we call it Athens. The history of religion starts with Jerusalem uh, and it starts with the Hebrews. Uh, but actually that's dead wrong. To begin with, only European culture separates philosophy and religion to begin with. Everything is religion everywhere else in the world. And philosophy is only the theory of religion. It's theology, essentially. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm adamant about that. that that's what we should look at it. So there really isn't a home of philosophy or a home of religion here. It's religion and philosophy are one of the same thing. And it's just that we have linear time arriving from the Persian Jewish ancestry, meaning eventology in European culture has a Persian Jewish origin. Mm -hmm. And nomadology is what we practice since the Greeks and the Romans. Mm -hmm. And okay. it comes out of Greek and Roman polytheism and out of Greek and Roman philosophy and literature. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that, that is a better way of looking at European and American history today. It's, it's a look at the origin here. It's a shared one where nomadology and eventology are better words than philosophy and religion. So it's the way we perceive history and time and what gives us meaning throughout time. Because if it's everything is circular and returns to the same, mm -hmm. you might as well throw away as many things you possibly can as you go along because history is going to start fresh from zero yeah. with every new loop. 
But with eventology, what's weird is that suddenly you start to write down all of history. You start to write down who was the son of whom, who was the son of whom, who was the son of whom, who was the son of whom. And you get obsessed with the origin of the tribe. Where, do, where does your family come from? Where does your tribe come from? Who, who was the Ur father? Mm -hmm. you know, 500 generations ago, who That's was just there, right? seems to be just you start to record human history, right? Yes. That's what you're saying. Yeah, because you can write because you can write because you have you yeah. cannot have linear time without writing and i haven't seen anybody make this connection before but i think it's the deeper connection is that we know we settled permanently some eight to ten thousand years ago starting in contemporary kurdistan and along the river valleys, this this way of living spread and because it was highly successful when it came to feeding people the populations grew immensely suddenly half the population of the world lived in Mesopotamia and then India and China and, and Egypt became populated. And of course, this became a winning model because you could create large armies out of farmers coming out of river valleys, right? Mm -hmm. So that conquered the world, that model. But it was also tied to the idea that you could write down. And you did write down. You wrote down everything that had to do with farming. You wrote down how many cattle you had when you started raising cattle. But you also mm -hmm. wrote down a new narrative. And the new yeah. narrative had to be one that wasn't just made up by shaman now about tomorrow in the tribe. So I kind of want to. It had to be. It had to be. It had to be year after year after year after year after year. And this new obsession with linear time, this eventology, then yeah. became the religions of the Middle East and Europe. Okay, so I, I kind of want to come back to the present now because I was thinking that uh, yes, we have we've had this recorded history of this eventology, yeah. this, this kind of religion, and now we have the internet. Uh, where everything is being kind of recorded. So, so I, I wonder if you could talk about, yeah, I mean, what's going on right now? And if we could, we could bring that back to the, the whole issue of pandemics and, 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 uh, Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the benefit of writing down history is that you do write down myths, but they represent reality. I mean, if you write a myth, if you go to mythos instead of logos, right? Mm -hmm. Logos, for example, in science, logos is fact, it's mathematics, it's, 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 it's zeros and ones. And obviously you can only solve the pandemic by going to logos. Mm. That's a medical science that has to solve this problem. Uh, but mythos is sometimes the better way of telling a story to teach people how to live their lives properly. So say Noah and the Ark, for example, obviously a mm -hmm. myth, right? Mm -hmm. So, but the myths are there in religion, like Jordan Peterson stresses all the time, they're incredibly important to understand, to understand why they're there and what they teach us. And obviously, when you look at the myths, one of the things they taught us early on when we started writing them down was that the conditions had changed and we become permanently settled. Now, mm -hmm. you have very different problems in a permanently settled society than you would have in a nomadic society. Yeah. Right? For example, you live along a river. Mm. Flooding. Mm. Oops. Okay. Uh, how do we make young men dream about irrigation? <laughs> mm -hmm. So we can separate the water, distribute it over a larger piece of land without getting flooding. So how can you create a delta on which you can farm yeah. rather than having flooding all the time? But it took thousands of years for people to try to figure out how you avoid flooding. In some places of the world, they still haven't. Yeah. And flooding causes enormous havoc and kills loads of people. So if, yeah. if you know you've got flooding already, it's obviously going to happen. Then obviously also along the river while you're trading or between the river systems while you're trading, which is the trade routes, for example, the Silk Route is built, yeah. between, is built between the major river valleys of the Middle East and Asia. And, and it's, it is the beginning and the end of all civilization, to be honest about it. The Silk Route is amazing. But obviously if you did trade for you know a couple of hundred years Every now and then along the trade route, also an invasion of an angry little mob of nomads would happen, like the Mongols, mm -hmm. or a pandemic would spread. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So all of history is full of these pandemics. Yeah, so all of history is full of the floods, it's full of the pandemics and the epidemics, and these things happen. Now, obviously, they happen even more today, more than ever, at a more frequent level, because we travel more, we're more interconnected than ever before. Yeah. But for good or bad, we also have cameras everywhere, and we have microphones everywhere, and we memorize absolutely everything through our machines. Mm -hmm. And because we do this today, um, we both can spread the warning about a new disease like we did out of Wuhan, China. That was like five months ago from today, March 19th. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And all of the world knew about it within weeks. It, it's yeah. possible that China's hit it longer than they should have. 
And that's also possible one of the reasons why it's become so lethal and so problematic. But yeah. at least after a while, when that epidemic started spreading in Wuhan, China, and a major city was sort of struck by the pandemic, it became known in the rest of the world. And the, the, the idea that this could spread far outside of China and cause even more havoc elsewhere suddenly took root, right? Mm -hmm. And this happened very, very quickly. So also now we got tons of parallel studies around the world to try to see, is there any medication that sort of can put a break on this, can help us out? That's also happening in the parallel studies being done around the world. They put their studies online from day one so they can yeah. work in, say, Washington State in America, in Australia, in China, and in Holland. And so Scotland. isn't this the first parallel time studies. there's been a, a pandemic where, where the whole world has to react sort of no, simultaneously? No, 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 we, no, that was SARS. That was SARS, huh? Which is closely related to this. And SARS was stopped. Yeah. SARS was even worse. So let's, let me say it's the first pandemic. slower. It's the first pandemic that's gone out of control that we need to everybody, like during SARS, I didn't have to isolate myself. You didn't either. I mean, it's everybody. Well, the Chinese being did, affected. Right? So, yeah. No, but everybody in the world is being affected by it. Yes, yes. So, so yes, that's correct. It, it's not, I think a better example is the Spanish flu that happened at the end of the First World War starting in 1918. Mm -hmm. And that was tragic. It killed almost as many people as the war had. And it killed young people more than older people. It was actually yeah. the opposite effect. It was right, young right. people who died and old people survived. So the structure of that flu virus was different from this one. So the problem with this one is that it, it is causing a lot of havoc. And Italy and Iran, especially our two tragedies already, and we'll see what happens next. But, and it looks bad. It looks really bad, to be honest about it. But um, SARS was more lethal then uh, uh, the COVID-19, well, the, the, the name of the virus is actually SARS-2, more or less, but mm -hmm, it, it's mm -hmm. COVID-19 is what we call the infection. And, and COVID-19, though, it spreads easier. And probably it's even so bad, this is March 19 again, that it looks, the last week it looks like it's the symptomatic spread of the virus actually is causing most of the problems. That's what happened in Italy and the Alps. Where the what does that mean, asymptomatic spread? Yeah, you know? the, symptomatic means that unless you start coughing and, and showing clear signs of having the infection, you're not spreading it to anybody else. Mm -hmm. Oh, I see. Asymptomatic. Asymptomatic means that you don't have symptoms, but you still spread it. And that's right, even right. worse because you don't even know you're sick. So you're probably going to go on with your life the way you do. So we the don't current know who trend has it Yeah, the current had, trend towards mass, yeah. The current trend towards mass self-isolation in France and Italy and Spain is based on the idea that the problem in asymptomatic spread of the pandemic is so serious that, it, that we have to take it into the calculation. Otherwise, yeah. you wouldn't have healthy people who self-isolated. Yeah. So we don't know yet. This is, again, March 19th. But we can learn from history from previous epidemics and pandemics. And certainly philosophy has a lot to say about this, especially when it comes to eventology. Because once we understand how important eventology has become to us after written language arrived, and after we settled permanently, and after we look at all of history, all the way back, back to the Big Bang, or the Big, big Bounds, it's probably called now, um, these 13.8 billion years of history, it would be unfathomable for us as human beings to think of history that way and that way far back if we haven't invented the eventological religions. Mm -hmm. Without Zoroastrianism, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, we wouldn't think of history that way. Yeah. We wouldn't think of linear history at all. Mm -hmm. um, but we do now, and we do both. We both have a conception of history like it's circular, certainly for ourselves as human beings, because we live and we die. And hopefully when we die, somebody inherits us and take over everything. And we can then transcend by dying and letting somebody else take over and run the world until their children then do the same thing. That is a very circular concept of reality. And that is fundamental to human life. We can call that even a vertical nomadology rather than a horizontal nomadology. Horizontal nomadology is when the entire society moves. Mm -hmm. from the past into the future. The vertical nomadology is your own life. When you move mm -hmm. from child to grown up to, to parent or, or, or elderly, and, and then hopefully if you die one day, you've lived a full life, you'll be respected by the community and they'll honor you by giving you a special place in their history. So mm -hmm. that is all part of the, what we can call the vertical nomadology. But the eventology of history itself as a series of events, um, is different. And this is why things like Tutankhamun's so definition... Can I, can I stop you yeah. for a second? Yeah. The eventology, um, the vertical eventology is circular. Because no, no, no. No, no, no. no, no. Eventologist does not have anything circular about it at all. But it's, a, it's an eternal return. No. no the okay. eternal return of the same is nomadology. 
Okay. Eventology is just a flat time axis. There's okay. a definite before and after. You can never go back. Once something okay. has happened, okay, you, you cannot go back. When Nietzsche, no, when no Nietzsche, reincarnation, yeah. you just live in then you die. Oh, exactly. Reincarnation oh. is definitely tied to nomadology in the circular time. It's impossible okay. to think an idea like reincarnation gotcha. otherwise. Okay. It actually makes sense. It's a, reincarnation. Well, if you, if, you, if you your soul doesn't have a memory, your soul might as well be reused for the next life that's being born. It, 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 the problem with reincarnation is rather a problem. If you memorize everything you had in your life, then you're born old. Well, you're not supposed to, but then it's all reincarnation in the sense that you are reincarnated. Mm -hmm. Rather, it's life itself that's being reincarnated. Human life is being reincarnated. A new generation is born, an old generation dies. Now, yeah. that makes sense, and that's nomadological, and it's circular. Yeah. So mm -hmm. the, the, way you the, the way you deal with the nomadology, this pure nomadology, like Buddhism, like at least the Buddha did, was that you have to get out of this circularity. There's no other way solving the problem. And the only way to get out of the circularity is going to moksha and nirvana and basically disappear from the whole circularity and probably then cease to exist once and for all. So, so you, you go towards ceasing to exist or at least ceasing your desires ceasing to exist. That is, that is, makes perfect sense if you are a nomadologist and nothing mm -hmm. else. But if you're an eventologist and you think that the world is literally changing with every new generation, we human beings might look alike, you might think alike, and our brain capacity might be similar from one generation to the next, but the life around us, our Umwelt, as it's called in German, is changing all the time. Now, I believe that- We have that to be both, there. right? We have to- so Yeah, we, we, to we have both stories. They're we're, parallel we're, we're stories. Both, you know? right? Like we do logos, mythos, and pathos, they're different uh, ways of telling narrative in the first place. Then what are the major narratives? What are the grand narratives? You know, Sodekvist and mm -hmm. I are working on this grand narrative trilogy. And fundamentally, we're going to divide in the third book is divide the nomadology, the eventology. And the eventology is to understanding how important linear time became to us 10,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. Because we have to go beyond the seasons. You, you cannot just invest for this season and not for the next season. You have, you have to think, yeah. okay, what am I going to save in terms of seeds for the next season? Well, then the next season is not identical to this one. Mm -hmm. I might have more or less seeds next season than I did this last mm -hmm. year. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then one year is different from the last year. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then the years follow one after the other. All yeah. right. Then you get a time axis that is not circular any longer. It's linear. And it can it can go all the way back to the Big Bang or the Big Bounce or even be before that. And it can go as far as you like into the future. Mm -hmm. Now, once you've accepted eventology, you also accept that at certain dates, certain important things happen. That's why you and I are using eventology now when we're saying March 19, 2020. Yeah. yeah. Because our obviously our discussion today here is so time-specific. That's yeah. unavoidable considering well, the circumstances. If I could just say one thing you mentioned, I think, in our last talk about, uh, um, was it Lacan and, and the um, imposition of the real, right? When the real comes on. Yes. And uh, that, that seems to be what I feel like I'm experiencing, if I can be personal. Very clever, oh. yes. Shlava Shishik has written about this. Uh, if you look at an event for society as a whole, then obviously September 11 comes to mind. Yeah. And if you and I yeah. would have sat here on September 12 and had this discussion, it would have been avoidable not to talk about it mm -hmm. and speculate about it because we couldn't know that much on September 12. We could only yeah. speculate. So we're in a bit of the same position now, right in the middle of the corona pandemic hitting Europe in a bad way where you and I live. It's March 19. So it's the same thing. We're in the middle of the event itself. It's impossible not to think about it. And that's when the real hits you. And, and the way Lacan describes it is that you have two ways of, of you two kinds of fantasies. You have an imaginary fantasy and you have your symbolic fantasy. Your imaginary fantasy is what you fantasize about mm -hmm. in a vague, abstract way. And your, your more concrete fantasy is the symbolic one because it's tied to language itself. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So you live in these two fantasy worlds. You live in the fantasy world of language and the fantasy world of, of, of pure imagination. And suddenly the real breaks through. You and I have talked about it when discussing John Favark in the past in our critique of him that he doesn't really understand where religion comes from. Religion is how we deal with the real. Yeah. Religion always starts with a thunderbolt in the head of one of the guys in the tribe. No, oh, and he dies. He's just like, whoa, 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 that, that thunderbolt just killed my brother. What the fuck's going on, right? So yeah. uh, pandemics, flooding, all that these disasters fit into this. Right? It's something that you can't uh, understand or digest. It's too much for you personally to deal with 
on some level. It breaks your fantasy to begin with. It just, it just, yeah. your fantasy is like, what the fuck did I believe? I'm living in a fantasy. This, this is reality. And suddenly what strikes you, this is why it's so divine. Uh, what strikes you is Rudolf Otto has written extensively about mm-hmm. this. And Mircea too. But, you know, the great That's anthropologist, great, yeah. 20th century, have written a lot about this. But religion starts with the fact that, oh, something interrupts, breaks into your fantasy. And you perceive it as reality itself. September yeah. 11 was clearly that. The current corona pandemic is clearly that because it's like we, we suddenly, we know that nobody's in charge of society. Yeah, and also- There's been, no father here. There's no mother. Nobody's taking care of us. We, we've, been we theorizing about, we've been theorizing about a breakdown of some kind Yeah. Uh, uh, for a long time. Yeah. And what's actually happening is very different than all this, this theorizing. Yes, yeah. And still, it is a breakdown and still it could be even worse. Right. <laughs> it's just like the worst sure. thing to comprehend, right? Sure, sure. Uh, that's why, uh, say, Auschwitz and, and the Second World War is still a trauma with us. It, it is definitely a major event or a trauma, if you like. It, it, it's sort of a negative impact event is what we call the trauma, right? So mm. major social trauma is, of course, the concentration camps and the Second World War in general. Hitler, Stalin, 100 million people dead in Europe, right? We're still, we, 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 we think we can We're just solve that and that, ignore it after 1945 oh, no. and not deal with it. But, but, you know, we opened the concentration camp doors at about the same time that we exploded the first atomic bomb over Hiroshima. Yeah. How could you possibly say history hasn't changed since then? Mm-hmm. That is ridiculous. And that is why I'm adamant that eventology today is even more important than nomadology to understand the times we live in. Mm-hmm. Of course, for a Christian, there is a before and an after Christ on the cross. Mm-hmm. Now, for Jews and, 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 and uh, Zoroastrians, they disagree that completely. And, and Jews and Zoroastrians agree he's probably just a mad Gnostic who Caiaphas, for all the right reasons, executed. So we got rid of him because otherwise things would be wor- much worse off. Jews and Zoroastrians don't ho- hold Jesus in very high regard at all. But of course, the Christians do because him dying on the cross, that is the before That's and the, the after. Event of that the is the Christian major, exactly. Christian this is the religion. major That's event the major in event human history. Religion. And it's possible that the killing of Tutankhamun was the major event that kickstarted Judaism. It's very possible that's what happened. Ah, I'm so, starting to get this. this is, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So, for when you approach eventological religions, they're very different from Buddhism, Taoism, and Hinduism. The eventological religions, Zoroastrianism and, 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 and the Abrahamic religions, are different in the sense that for them, the events are key to understanding the human condition. Hmm. This so, seems to be uniquely Western, isn't it? Event, no, it's Middle East. It's Middle, Middle Eastern, East. Middle Eastern. And that is then, it, it's not what well, was Western. I don't want to say Western. Uh, like, yeah, because in Western. Terms of hegemonic, but it seems to be. No, that. no, no. West, Western was the Greeks and the Romans and the pagans, and they were all circular. They were all like the Hindus are today. They were their mm-hmm. own circular mindset. The revolution starts with the reformer of the Iranian religion, which, who was Sorastor, th- okay. 3,700 years ago, the publication of the Gothas. This could really be the event among texts published, more so than the Bible. Uh, because. It added eventology to the human understanding of the world. And Zoroaster is adamant that he's aware of this. The entire text of the Gothas is about the difference between the nomads that are on the move and the people who decided to permanently settle. <laughs> and he knew that people who permanently settled would then have history. They would have a year zero. This is when we settled. Before <laughs> that, history only repeated itself. There is no counting of time there's no there's no calendar mm, there's no calendar yeah. there's no calendar before you settle permanently there's no there's no need for a calendar that starts with a year zero and then as a year one and a year two and a year three and a year four mm, right and then you have eventually when new events happen that you claim are more important than the original event then you get christianity system oh christ on christ was born so uh, because he was born that was more important than than the birth of the first text so we're going to make this year zero, and then we have before year zero, before Christian yeah. era, and after. Okay. And yeah. the Muslims do the same thing later. They don't even have 12 months on their calendars. It's very confusing. But, you know, if, if you're going to be totally honest about it, year zero should be the publication of the Gothas, which is about 3,775 years ago. Um, because that date. That's the, the first, first time somebody claims to, According to your history, that's the yeah. first um, event. The first event according to eventology. According to linear time. The first, like, yeah. uh, okay, I see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's when linear Like time, the story of humanity begins at this point. Yeah, linear time had only existed temporarily within circular time before that. It existed uh, oh, between men. It existed in the outer circuit because mm-hmm. linear time is the beginning of logos. 
Well, okay, but what about like in a in a Haida Indian group? They have they have stories about the, the origin of their their clan and and uh, and how it came to be and. Yeah, but it's different though. Because What's the difference? Yeah, uh, the difference is that they will then celebrate that every year. Uh-huh. So if you, Messiah Eliad goes through this story in his anthropology, is that uh, so? If, if there's a birth of the world at a certain point in time, then every year at that time the world is being reborn. Mm-hmm. Therefore, there is no specific date for the birth of the world itself. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's the same time every year. So say you celebrate midsummer, which all pagans do, and we still do in, 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 in you know, post-Christian Scandinavia. Uh, midsummer is like the, the longest day of the year, the shortest night, which is end of June. And you celebrate that because it's the peak obviously in the calendar. And it's the same date every year. That's eternal so, return because it, it, it returns exactly. eternally, whereas an event like coronavirus or the yeah. birth of Jesus or whatever is, yeah. is, is it changes history. Yes, yes. Okay. So, so yeah, y- you could say even that the coronavirus pandemic, as it's currently structured, is an event. The influence of virus that returns every winter is a typically nomatological mm-hmm. phenomenon. Yeah. So we don't use the word event for that. We try to use the word event only for eventologies, where it's specific in time and unique. Okay. Um, that's the way Heidegger and, 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 and Badiou use it before me and Sedeckis. So, so eventology is about that. Rather, in the nomadology, it's a ritual. So I've never, ever here in Scandinavia heard a Scandinavian talk mm-hmm. about the first midsummer. Yeah, it's, it wouldn't... No, it, 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 it's incomprehensible. It's just, no, midsummer is celebrated every midsummer. And midsummers have existed forever. Yeah, got it. So that is nomadology. Yeah, that's nomadology. And you will then discover that what's interesting is that women actually take more to nomadology and men take more to eventology. Mm. In general, population, there's a lot of women who are brilliant at eventology. uh, And there's a lot of men who are very good at nomadology. But overall, in terms of populations, again, we see these patterns of large populations that when you come to the outer circuit and the hunting and warfare activities that dominate that circuit, where men are usually located, and young boys aspire to be heroes when they grow up to be part of the outer circuit and join the other men and go through a rite of passage. All those activities that they, they, they take place that are much more geared towards eventology. So eventology mm-hmm. existed within the tribe, but it sort of broke eventology down all the time. more masculine because men yeah. want to construct the future, right? Yes, and uh, women are good at remembering birthdays. And women are good at <laughs> uh, want to remember birthdays and also take care of the, the community. And it's a great split. Because yeah. it, it's not a problem that men are yeah, women are no, different. It's, it's, a, it's a great asset that they're different from one another. Even yeah. now we take care of the pandemic, we'll discover that certain female traits are very useful. Women are very, very, very good at caring. They beat the shit out of men here. Uh, men are usually better at, say, the, the overall planning, where we're going to go, where we're going to put the resources. Not, 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 there's a lot of women who are good at that too, but men yeah. in general are more specialized at that. Also, the irony here is that so far also the virus has hit more men than women. The more men than women. Oh, it has. Die. I didn't know that. I didn't. So know that. women, the female body has an advantage apparently when it comes to how how, how it reacts to the virus, huh. and that's also very common. It, you know, it's uh, men often die younger and under more violent circumstances than women do. Mm-hmm. Right, and that is because of the structure of the body. They're more vulnerable, physiologically more vulnerable. Mm, interesting. Yeah, yeah. you think the opposite, right? You would think that yeah, they're stronger, yeah. more physically stronger. But that's the, probably a price they vulnerable. pay for being physically stronger. I would uh-huh. say. That's mm-hmm. probably more likely to. So very, that's very interesting. Saying. But mm-hmm. you also you mentioned something. We 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 started playing around with a new word we're working with now, and you we all know that. Exodology. Exodology. I love this word. I love this. I I love this word because it's something, uh, it's like, this is what has to be done. Exodology. Yeah. (laughs) In a way, like, well, I'm thinking of all the institutional difficulties of dealing with the coronavirus. And I'm thinking about what needs to be done. As a teacher, I'm thinking about schooling and, and education and that kind of thing. Um, and that is it. Need, what needs to be done is to move from the old, dead structures into the new, whatever that yeah. is. Yeah. So what happens now is that the exodology of our time is obviously the move from physical into digital. So um, uh, that will ironically accelerate because of this. This yeah, is said, March. It 8th. seems to be already. This is March 19. We're in the middle of a huge financial crisis across the Western world, and still Amazon announced yesterday they're about to employ 100,000 more people in North America. Uh, so, obviously, 
e-trade is taking off in a massive way at the moment. E-commerce oh, is yeah, just God, happening, yeah. right? And, and for those guys out there run restaurants and hair salons and all the small businesses, I think the large companies will be saved, but, but the small companies are going to have, have a hell of a time over the next few months to survive, right? Oh, so, so that's a real economic tragedy that's going on at the moment. And that's also why the isolation probably has to be broken sooner or later also for economic reasons. Otherwise, all of society falls apart. But when this is happening, what you talk about is an exodology applied in our times. The exodology is going on in our time is what Sedeke and I have written in all our books. Mm-hmm. This is the paradigm shift from uh, an urban physical society over to a virtual digital society. Yeah. So we're moving online and we're doing it at a rapid pace because obviously you and I can have this conversation and we can certainly not transmit. All my classes are online now. It's totally yeah. weird. I, I teach 25 hours of classes a, a week and they're all online now. And all and these is, old people who couldn't do this kind of shit, they're in, way in the old in the past, are having to learn all this these new structures and communicate with each other in a totally different way. And yes, and I, this, I, is I, an mean, I, this is I, an exodus. I'm happy about that um, because I could stay at home and work, <laughs> you know, and I don't have to go, take the train. I, I'm sorry to be, speak so personally. I know we're talking about larger things than than just to just me and you, but um, education. Yeah. No, no, but this is happening overall. I mean, th- there's no setbacks to the digital realm at the moment. It's, it's moving at, forward fast and quickly and taking over the old structures. And yeah. we've talked about this for the last 30 years. Obviously, this is an exodus, right? A, a paradigm yeah. shift for all of society and all of the world is moving in that direction. So exodology is the study of exoduses. Yeah. So which are the big exoduses of history? And how do they operate? Some of them are physical. Like mm-hmm. the exodus out of Egypt, the exodus out of Babylon, or say, uh, when Europeans moved en masse from Europe to North America in the 19th century, there was a huge exodus. So, so mm-hmm. you have these big movements throughout history, and people have moved from place one to place two or eight. That, but that doesn't uh, exist and, and of course, in- we moved all the time we were nomads. So mm-hmm. yeah. nomadology would, would mean a kind of permanent exodology. So that would be a realm of permanent exodus. Uh, yeah, sure. today's global nomads who travel, but well, they have traveled until now. They're probably locked up somewhere now a few months. But usually the global nomads who travel all the time and who fly everywhere and who live their lives in airport hotels and things like that. And I'm part of that circuit myself. They, they are obviously the nomads of today. And, and no, nomadology therefore returns in a big way because understanding yourself as a person who's on the move all the time makes sense in a world where that's beneficial. So mm-hmm. if, you, if you can be a global nomad, it turns out that's, that's why you have a career and why you're successful and you, you get the lifestyle you desired, then obviously nomadology is the right word for that. But the, the exodology that we're working with here really is also what's important here. If you're going to unify nomadology and eventology mm-hmm. and try to tell a shared story, mm-hmm. the shared story would have to be called the exodology. Mm-hmm. How because it is unify. I'm not. Yeah. Up how, how do you, so? How do you describe a society today where both history is so important, and when we have these events, for example, now the Corona pandemic, and we have the event of 1982, which was the arrival of the internet. You know, we have the event of the World Wide Web arrival in 1992. We have these major technological and also epidemiological uh, events that are happening around us. Political events are happening. September mm-hmm. 11 was neither of the two. It was a political, military mm-hmm. event even. Um, so all these things that are happening around, these events that set uh, the history of our time, we certainly think of those as very important. And there are befores and after to all of us that we share because of them. And um, then we have the nomadology, which is like, well, everything returns to the same uh, we got to get used to dying when we die. We don't believe we're going to live forever any longer. Maybe we never did. Uh, what does it mean to transcend then? What does it mean to have a spiritual quality to your life? What does it mean to really go deep and try to find the right priorities in your life? Like, you know, solving the meaning crisis, as we would say with yeah, yeah. Marcus yeah. vocabulary. So I would say that we need both nomadology and eventology. And maybe my critique of Favarki, when I critiqued him for not having phallus in there, is that his worldview is too nomadological and not eventological enough. He ends up somewhere yeah. between Buddha and Plato, and they're both nomadological and circular. And it doesn't yeah. deal with the fact that linear and eventological still is incredibly important to human beings, maybe still the most important aspect of, of human life. And that's where I return to Zoroastrianism, and I return to linear thinking and linear t- timelines, because we must have that kind of history too. 
Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we just repeat the same mistakes. And, and linear, as you say, problems. linearity, we could yeah. come back to your uh, word. Take equitopianism, right? Yeah, but take equitopianism, for example. Take, take the proper response to the environmental crisis. Okay, if mm-hmm. that crisis is going to be solved, we can't just lock down the entire world and go poor and then die and kill each other because then we have billions of people dead in the end, right? Mm-hmm. That's not a viable alternative. I'm, I'm afraid, I'm not saying Greta makes that connection. I'm afraid of the connection between the Greta Thunbergs or environmentalist fanatics and, and cons- concentration camps eventually. That, I think that's a scary uh, route that we want to avoid at all costs. So you have to have an ontological approach to that. And the ontological approach to that is that say that if environmentalism is a nomadology of how we deal with the climate crisis, mm-hmm. then ecotopianism is an eventology of how you deal with the climate crisis. You build better technologies. Mm-hmm. You solve the problem with more and new and better technologies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You build sensors. You put those sensors in the seas. And you put them in the sky. You, you tax carbon. That's where environmentalists and ecotopians agree. You tax carbon so that you can get you know, fossil fuels out of the system. Cleaner air. Yeah. Cleaner air, yeah. That would be <laughs> delayed. I noticed that the air is a lot cleaner in the past week here. <laughs> That's very... only temporary. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, I know. But... The oil price has also fallen to $27. So, you know, so um, you've got probably going to burn more oil and gas than ever once this over. <laughs> That's the tragedy you know, of our times. You can only solve one problem. You can only solve a problem at a time. Spring, spring flowers are exploding here and there's clean air and <laughs> I don't know. That's temporary. Yeah, that's clean air at a tremendous cost. At a tremendous cost. Indeed. That's an okay. enormous cost. If you don't understand that, you're a naive environmentalist and you, okay. you, you're, okay. you're no longer part of the debate because the cost right now for having that specific clean air is more like the cost of all people having died. Yeah, and, and all these people it's, it's in not realistic at all. stuck in their little apartments. Uh, it's, it's terrible. I, mm. No, it, what you're going to see is that people are going to drive more cars than ever a month from now rather than riding a bus or the subway. So... We've got yeah. more pollution than ever. So this current state on March 19 is not the state we're going to arrive at once the pandemic is over. It's going to get worse in many different aspects before mm-hmm. this is over. Yeah. That's guaranteed, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, but I think it helps to look at the world as an eventology in this sense. And okay, something major happened. The real broke into our collective imaginary and symbolic fantasies. Yeah. We have to deal with the fact that the gods have run amok and it causes havoc on us. And it's, it, it's time to, number one, of course, not sit and make podcasts like you and I do, to be honest about it. It's, it take care of your neighbors, isolate your mom, uh, take care of the people at risk, find out who's at risk, learn every day the new stuff that's coming out. Science is now producing new truths every day. Learn every one of them, wake up every morning during meditation, then go straight into the newsfeed, learn what's the latest news, and then, then find yourself on the map, what can you do the most to help yourself and those you love and care for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's the number one priority right now. Mm-hmm. So then we can learn the lessons afterwards. It's way too early to draw the conclusions, but there is a long history of epidemics and pandemics. Philosophers, complexity theorists, obviously epidemiologists and doctors and tons of other people out there study these things. They're prepared for them. Uh, unfortunately, politicians haven't been as prepared. The resources we need right now in Europe are lacking. That is going to be a major problem. Unfortunately, a lot of people are going to die because of that, because we're too cheap on having enough medical equipment around. That's another lesson we need to learn. And we need to memorize that lesson and keep it for generations, because otherwise we repeat our mistakes all over and over again. And this is the case for eventology. The case for eventology is if I stay in a nomadological circular timeframe and I never leave it, I will always repeat the same mistakes every time sure. a new pandemic comes along. Sure. The only way I can't repeat those mistakes or improve on the situation compared to the last time is through eventology. So a couple of things that uh, um, this virus or whatever is going to help us with, <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. uh, we could say is it will increased hygiene, will we'll, uh, we'll shift to homeschooling, uh, will... Um, well, there'll be technological acceleration, hopefully, right? Um, I don't know. I mean, there could be a lot of uh, very positive um, innovations as a result of that. We, I mean, can't, tell. You can't, you can't, we can't tell. tell. You can't tell. You can't tell yet. You say a lot of technological innovation. That costs money. 
Right now, we're in the middle of a huge economic crisis. You're going to have a lot of companies well, you, that will go down. Only money, they could have I mean, invented. You know, you can't say that. You can't say okay. that there's hopeful and great stuff coming out of this shit. It's okay. not what's okay. going to happen. Okay. Prepare yourself for a big mess for the next few years and a major, massive economic recession. Mm-hmm. And that's not when you innovate. Yeah, at the end of it, there could be a period of innovation coming out of it. But to be honest about it, there's a lot of scientific products that will be folded because of this crisis too, because they will lack, lack funding. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the total focus on solving the virus problem at the moment means that if, if you're running into a traffic accident today on your way into Paris, yeah. you'll probably be last in line and you probably die at the hospital because of a traffic accident. Because uh, yeah, of okay. Mm-hmm. So no, I'm not denying all any of that. I, no, I, I I I don't want to talk about the positive effects okay, of the coronavirus right. pandemic right in the middle of it. I think it's just it, 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 that that just smacks of escapism to me. Now I, th- I think it, it's much better to look at the ongoing spiritual revolution that's happening, but right now it's not about sitting there praying. It's all about going out, knocking on your neighbor's doors, and asking if you can help them out with something. That's that's really how you become a, a real mensch right now in the middle of the crisis. And, mm, okay. and then we have to compare, in Europe, we compare the different countries. Can we please avoid the Italian disaster or now the Italian-Spanish disaster? Can we avoid in the rest of Europe? Well, hopefully we can. And hopefully Italy and Spain can be better off three weeks from now. But it's going to take weeks for this to change, maybe even months. Mm. And we don't know where the damage is going to end right now. We're March 19. And it's, it's, just, it's just, I think it's a waste of time to speculate when you can actually go out and help your neighbors. Okay, I agree. Way. I agree hundred percent. That's a more spiritual approach right now. Mm-hmm. We 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 have we just we've just seen our fantasies about the world crushed. 